One of the most interesting things about the research that I did for all my work on the fall of Singapore, when I began doing this in the early 90s, there were still a reasonably large number of veterans alive. Mm. And I guess over the course of the next decade plus, I must have spoken to, I suppose, between 50 and 60. Mm. Uh, a couple in New Zealand, uh, quite a number in the UK, and uh, about a dozen plus in Australia. Mm. And every one of them answered one question exactly the same way. If you had known beforehand how the Japanese were going to treat you as a prisoner of war, would yeah. you have fought harder and refused to surrender? Every single one of them said, absolutely yes. What would we have had to lose? Welcome back to the Death Railway Revisited podcast. I'm Nick Fordham, and inspired by the movie The Bridge on the River Kwai, I'm on a journey to discover what really happened here in Southeast Asia 80 years ago. Why, at a conservative estimate, approximately 100,000 people died, maybe more, constructing a railway from Thailand to Burma. And in doing so, I've unearthed some surprising facts about what actually happened and what did not. And you say there was no bridge over the River Kwai. In fact, there was no River Kwai. Absolutely, absolutely. Along the way, I'm talking to experts to help me piece the story together. People like the man whose voice you've just heard, Rod Beatty, creator of the Thailand-Burma Railway Centre in Kanchanaburi, and Brian Farrell of the National University of Singapore, whose voice started this episode. And to get a first-hand contemporary perspective, I'll also be reading extracts from diaries, letters, and memoirs from prisoners of war who were there, and whose lives were forever shaped by their experience building the Death Railway. On the train travelling through Malaysia, I'm reading about Japan's conquest during the war and its new empire. Before the war, Japan had colonised Korea, Taiwan and large parts of China, including Manchuria. But in late 1941, the pace of military conquest and victories was staggering. I read that... Within five months of the attack of Pearl Harbour, Japan had conquered Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, Burma, Java, Sumatra, Borneo, the Philippines and all the islands in the Western Pacific. By May 1942, its new empire embraced 110 million people and stretched 4,000 miles in each direction. I spoke online with Sarah Kovner of Columbia University and author of Prisoners of the Empire, POWs and their captors in the Pacific about this vast new Asian empire. Right, so it's just over an enormous amount of, of uh, territory and one that I think is um, in some ways uh, standing right here in 2023. Um, to us, when we can see a map or see the internet or see Google Maps, and when we can communicate as we are right now over the internet, these distances don't seem as large and it doesn't seem as vast. But um, to people at that time, I think it was like almost inconceivably large amount of territory. Yeah, I, I read some of those over five different time zones, and and you're right. If you go from Manchuria all the way down to Dutch East Indies. That's that's a huge, huge distance. So, and I don't, I don't know if you know this, but um, the Japanese in, in Singapore, at least they they changed the time zone to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that uh, yeah. the 
prisoners complain about a lot is because it's Tokyo time uh, in when they're working on the railway. They ha- they're having to get up at, at you know seven o'clock Tokyo time, which is about five o'clock in the morning for their time. So they're always getting up in the dark to work on the railway, and they're coming back when it's dark as well. How logistically challenging is it for Japan, therefore, when it's got this enormous empire? How logistically challenging is it around 1942 to, to manage it? Well, it's very logistically challenging. I mean, I think that... I, so I talked a little bit about the creation of this empire, and um, I think it's important to remember that imperial planners never thought through the kind of resources they would need to run an empire, um, in order to expand. And this creates a series of dilemmas for a military that is unprepared to with sufficient logistics or labor. Um, and going along with this, we see that the Japanese government um, simultaneously fails to create a coherent system of administration or a clear chain of command. And this makes it difficult to develop and enforce standards or to um, prevent mistreatment or neglect. Have you got some examples of that? I mean, we'll come onto the railway later, but are there other examples of, of how just kind of sheer mismanagement uh, in, in running this empire? Well, I think the best example is the way they lost the war. <laughs> Maybe that's a little bit glib, <laughs> okay. right? But, like, I think that... <laughs> but, um, <go> on. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that it, it's not as if, uh, you know, like looking at the Philippines and battles, they, they didn't know where things were. When you think about... Hmm. I, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. There are so many examples, um, mm. but they didn't have supplies and they didn't have military supplies or food supplies or um, or labor, right? And that is like, I think, the subject of your podcast, um, although I, I'm not sure, right, that, that they don't have sufficient labor to accomplish what they, the kind of goals that they want. And so then that's one reason that they, they start in some places in, in, some, in the empire at some time, they start having to rely on prisoner labor. That's a decision made. And so the Allied prisoners of war, including the men assembled at various camps in Changi, Singapore, are sent to construction projects across this vast empire. One of them is a new railway line to be built as quickly as possible between Thailand and Burma. I asked Rod Beatty at the Thailand-Burma Railway Centre about this. Why is it so important for the Japanese to build this railway and why build it so quickly? The original plan is five years to build this railway. Once they had started on this, the strategic situation of the war changed dramatically. So they didn't have this time frame to build this railway. They had to get it finished as quickly as they could, initially to support their army in Burma, supply them, prepare for their attack against India, But we're also looking at the shipping of supplies from Burma back to Japan, strategic materials. Mm. So we don't think of that very much. We just think, yeah, get their troops to Burma, get their supplies to Burma, et cetera, et cetera. So it's become urgent to get this railway finished because of the strategic change in the war from that early Japanese conquest to the reversals after the Battle of Midway particularly because their sea transports heading around to Rangoon were being interdicted by Allied submarines, aircraft, etc., etc. So their sea transport route became very vulnerable to Allied attack. So a relatively safe overland route is a good option. Mm -hmm. Get this railway finished. 
The sea route from Bangkok, Thailand to Rangoon, Burma is 2,200 nautical miles. So imagine if you were in France and wanted to supply an army in the north of the country from the south. But instead of going overland, doable in a day, you had to load up your ships in Marseille, set sail in a southwesterly direction into the Mediterranean, past the Gibraltar Straits in the south of Spain, sail up into the Atlantic and then head for Calais via the English Channel, all the while being harassed by enemy ships, planes and submarines. You'd want to explore an overland option, wouldn't you? And that's exactly what the Japanese did in 1942. Every month that they delayed cost them ships, supplies and men. With each year of the war, Japanese ships sunk by Allied submarines increased exponentially. 180 in 1942, 335 in 1943 and 603 in 1944. In all... Allied submarines destroyed 1,200 merchant ships, about 5 million tonnes of shipping. But the pressure on the Japanese engineers to finish this rail line was intense. Rob tells me the prisoners of war were sent to the Thai-Burma railway in groups. The first group to go by rail to Thailand went in June 1942. This group prepared the camps and collected materials for the railway. The Japanese wanted to wait for the end of the rainy season in October before starting construction. By then, men were amassed at both ends of the railway in Thailand and Burma, ready to go, with the plan being to start building in both countries and meet in the middle. In the spring of 1943, efforts to complete the railway intensified. More and more POWs were ordered up the railway from Changi. 5,000 in March, 10,000 in April, 3,000 in May. These last groups were some of the most unfortunate groups, F-Force and H-Force. Many of these men, their immune systems already weakened by malnutrition, were sick. The F Force group included a thousand British troops taken from hospital in Changi. These men were lured to Thailand with false promises of less work, more food, and better conditions. Amongst the men of F Force was Padre Noel Duckworth, a man who had coxed the Cambridge rowing team to three successive victories in the boat race and represented Britain in the 1936 Olympics. He was ordained that same year and during the war served as chaplain for the 2nd Battalion Cambridgeshire Regiment. He was captured by the Japanese as they advanced through Malaya after volunteering to stay behind to look after the sick and wounded. Here he describes the mood on embarkation to Thailand. The Japanese told us we were going to a health resort. We were delighted. They told us to take pianos and gramophones We were overjoyed, and we took them. Dwindling rations and a heavy toll of sickness were beginning to play on our fraying nerves and emaciated bodies. It all seemed like a bolt from the tedium of life behind Barbois and Changi. They said, send the sick, it will do them good. And we believed them, and so we took them all.
I'm travelling by rail from Singapore to Thailand, just like many of the POWs did 80 years ago. The conditions are ever so slightly different. Here's Harold Atchley, the English intelligence officer, whom we last met enjoying the cultural life in Changi, and who, like Noel Duckworth, was part of F-Force, describing the passage in his diary. Conditions on rail journey Singapore to Siam. Five days and nights allowed to get out of train for 30 minutes twice a day. No latrine arrangements. We had to urinate and crap out of the wagon door, being held out by others as we did so. Most had dysentery and were very weak, so that many who could not get up simply defecated where they lay and conditions in wagons were soon revolting. Little or no sleep at night. Very hot in day, in those all-metal wagons. Too many in each to allow us all to lie down at the same time. Appalling stench. Eric Lomax, in his book The Railway Man, describes the experience of being held out of the carriage by four other officers whilst defecating as unbearably embarrassing and the most undignified experience of his life. A week later, I got the opportunity to go inside one of those good wagons that Ashley and Lomax described. I'm standing now in one of these steel carriages that the men would have been transported on from Singapore to Thailand. It was a five-day journey. Now, I came up by rail as well, and I was on a sleeper for 24 hours. Now, I shared my carriage with 30 people, but I'm glad to say it wasn't as small as this carriage. This carriage is, I would estimate, about 2 metres by 8 metres in length. I would say our carriage was three or even four times longer. And we all had bunks, we were in double bunk beds. This space is tiny. You can probably hear the echoing because I'm in this metal box, this metal steel box. The first thing to say is it is incredibly hot. I'm putting my hand against the side now and you could fry an egg on that. It's so hot. The second thing really is is just how cramped the condition are. It's impossible to imagine that not only would maybe 30 other men be in here with me, but also all our kit, any kit that we wanted to bring up with us, would all be piled high in this carriage. It must have been incredibly hot, incredibly uncomfortable. The smell must have been unbearable because not only was everyone sweating so much and unbathed, but far, far worse, of course, that many of them had diarrhoea and dysentery and were so weak that they couldn't get up and so essentially just sold themselves where they lay. There's not enough space for 30 people to lie down here, so they would have had to have taken turns. I'm beginning to appreciate the pace of my journey. Travelling by train affords you time to just watch the world go by, read and reflect. Looking out of the window, I see mile upon mile of palm trees. Is there a country in the world that has more palm trees per square mile than Malaysia? I doubt it. 
Interestingly, I discover that there was not a single palm tree in Malaya before the British introduced them in 1870. Commercial palm oil production began 50 years later. Malaysia is now the world's second biggest producer of palm oil. Approximately 57,000 square miles of Malaysian land, 15% of the total Malaysian landmass, is taken up by palm oil plantations. Nor are they the only plantations. At the same time that they introduced palm trees, the British also introduced rubber. By the 1930s, Malaya was the world's largest exporter of rubber, exporting more rubber than all the rest of the world combined. Malaysia, it seems, is a country whose history is etched into its landscape. And it's not only the landscape that changed during British colonial rule. The population did as well. Almost 10% of the population are Indian, predominantly Tamil Indian, who were brought to Malaya by the British to work on these plantations. Whilst on the train, I take the time to reflect on what I've heard. And something that Jaya Adarai, founder of the Changi Chapel and Museum, told me in Singapore Cricket Club, has stayed with me. You know, till today, yeah. when you talk about uh, and you look in, at the, the popular literature and the popular films, mm. the impression given is that the Asians were on holiday when this war broke out. Yeah. Because you have a tremendous amount of stories focused on European soldiers or Australian soldiers. Mm. But the largest force that defended Malay in Singapore, for example, the Indians, is totally absent. Yes. All right. And and then the huge amount of Asian slave laborers that were on the Dev Railway, you don't find it in popular literature at all. No. You know, and and so they've been written out of history in a sense, mm. simply because they didn't do the recording, they didn't do the writing. And the people who did the recording and writing were more focused on their own forces. Mm. So you have a history that is not comprehensive and does not tell you the total picture and total story. Um, and 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 that's got to change over time. Uh, little research has been done. Research has started, yeah. uh, but you still have a lack of material, lack of records, mm. and a lack of interest. On my journey, I'm reading the memoirs of people like railwayman Eric Lomax and Harold Atchley, author of Prisoner of Japan. And although they do mention the Asian labourers they saw on the railway line, I'm struggling to find out much more about them. Who were they? Where did they come from? What's their story? Have they been written out of history, as J.S. suggests? Or was their story never recorded in the first place? And why is there so little interest in their story? So I'm off to meet Chandra Sekaran in Seremban, Malaysia, who's agreed to meet me and tell me their story. Chandra's family originally moved from India to Malaya to work on the railways. Like many people, his interest in the death railway began when he found out his father worked there. And he's now the chairman of Death Railway Interest Group, a group set up to promote greater knowledge and understanding of the experience of Asian labourers on the Death Railway. We talk first about the people brought from India to Malaya for work. 
where in India are they coming from? Is there a specific region? Yes. And the British bring them over to work on yes. plantations and railways yes. Yes. in Malaya. In Malaya, yes. And when, when would that have been exactly? When they started bring them, bringing them in? Yes. Around 1850s onwards. Right. To work on the plantations. On the plantations. But and the, the, the I mean, the early stages were the 1850s, but after that, they, they intensified in the, in, the, in the 20th century, the earlier part of the 20th century, from 1910 onwards, 1910, 1920, 30. Mm. In fact, some came in just about maybe a year or two before the war broke out. Mm. They were very new to this place. And then the war broke out and they found that they were jobless. So when the Japanese came to take them to work in Thailand, they don't know where they were going. They just said, we came here to earn a living. Mm. Uh, there's nothing to do here. Okay, let's go. So they took their families along to, to, to Thailand, not knowing where they are going to. So, Yeah, let's talk about that recruitment process because that's really interesting, isn't it? Okay. So how do the Japanese recruit them? What do they tell them mm -hmm. they're going to do? Okay. And does that policy change over time? Yes, certainly. You see, what happened is at the early stage of the war, the recruitment process was very ordered. But later on, it became a bit chaotic. Mm. So let me, let's go to the early stage of the war. The British had left. The Japanese were now the government. So they had authority over everybody else. So they will have to go and entice the workers and tell them, look, if you go there, you're, you're going to get a very high salary, three times what you get on the plantations mm -hmm. you're going to get there. And then the other thing is that the Japanese also told them that this uh, labor force will be rotated over three months. So you only go for a short period, make your money, you come back, then the next batch will go and so on, you know. So many went willingly. At the early stage, many of them went willingly. But then when you find that those who went never came back, or if at all those who were sick and they were sent back, they will tell the others, don't ever go there. It's a hell. Yeah. I'm lucky I escaped, you know? Yeah. So word spread out that it's not wise to go there. Then people started avoiding it. So when the Japanese actually come into the estates to recruit more people, the youngsters tend to go and hide. Mm. I have heard many stories, people telling me that my uncle actually went and hid in the attic or he ran away and, and things like that. People ran and, and hid and all that. So it wasn't so easy even to make this uh, recruitment through the uh, estate supervisors and so on. And then they went into more drastic ways of getting people. For example, uh, there's a movie going on and... Uh, uh, like I said, because they are in authority, they can tell the movie uh, theater owner to shut down the uh, uh, movies, mm. close all the doors and just leave one exit open. And everybody had to file through that exit. And the Japanese will just pick whoever they want. So they pick the able-bodied men to one side, they let the children and the old men and women go away. All able-bodied men are taken to one side, boarded on the lorry, on the Japanese uh, army trucks and taken to the nearest railway station. They bought it on the train and off they go, without even so much as a farewell. Um, the conditions are slightly different because I've read for the POWs that they're mm. carriages mm. with sliding steel doors. Yes. Maybe somewhere around 30 men yes. per door, but, but these are proper carriages with a yes. roof. Yes. Now, we were saying earlier that with the local Asian populations, there's not even a roof on the couch. No, no, none. So they are subject to the elements of the weather, you know, mm. during the day. 
If it's a scorching sun, you have to bear with it. If it rains, you're drenched. And then at night, with the wind blowing on your drenched clothes, you know, you'll be shivering with no clothes on. It must have been miserable. Of course it's miserable. Of course it's miserable. And especially when you think that these people, at least the POWs, had their knapsack with them. Yeah. They had their fork and spoon and whatever additional clothing. Mm. These people could, could have just been walking on the street and they were snatched in. Yes. And there is one documented case by a Japanese academic who had come to Malaysia to interview some of the survivors. And one of the survivors told her that he was just walking on in his plantation without even a shirt on. And he was uh, uh, taken onto the truck. And he begged to at least let him go home and put on a shirt. They said no. So he just disappeared, you know, without even saying farewell to his parents and all that, you know. So he was without a shirt throughout the journey. Can you imagine? It's extraordinary. Yes. Let's talk about the numbers because it's really difficult. We know, as you say, the Allied POWs, we have a very clear idea mm -hmm. of how many of them worked on the railway, yes. somewhere yes. around 60,000. Yes. But reading about the figures about how many people from Burma, Malaya, and Indonesia, mm -hmm. even Vietnam worked, the figures are just extraordinary. Some yes. people say 70,000, some people say 150, 200. I've seen figures as high as half a million. Yes. But to your point, it's, it's difficult to put a realistic target or number there. What would you say is, is the most realistic number of the amount of people that worked? I would say 300,000 is a conservative figure. Mm. And if anybody says half a million, I wouldn't dispute that. You know why? Mm. Uh, it depends on what you're talking about. You see, when you talk about the Burma Railway, everybody yeah. just talks about the railway that runs from Nong uh, Pladuk uh, to Tambuziat. Yep. That is the railway. Not many people know there was another railway that connected Thailand and Burma further south. Are you aware of that? So there are two railways. Not just one. Two. Why do we know so little about the second line? Chandra's answer is simple. Because no POWs worked on the second line the Kra Isthmus Railway. Only Asian labourers did, and their story is so poorly recorded. The story of the Death Railway is the story of the POWs. Had it not been for the prisoners of war who worked on the railway, today the railway would be a forgotten story. Nobody will talk about the railway. We are talking about it because prisoners of war had worked on it, so that is why the Thai government is maintaining that that railway, they keep the, the railway running because tourist dollars are pouring in. Mm. They're just minting money. Nobody cares about the victims of the railway. No. Maybe, yes, the governments of the Allied forces, they care about their own nationals. But do they care about the Asians that were taken there, who had worked side by side with them? So that means uh, you are working on the same project, essentially the same project. But one set of people get recognition and they get commemoration every year at the Hellfire Pass and all that. Another group of people, not only do they not get commemoration or anything, their existence itself is not acknowledged. Like I said, they never existed. Mm. Never existed. No commemoration. No monument, not one, for the thousands of unknown Asian labourers who died. Perhaps 
Nothing is more telling than the accuracy of the numbers we have for those who worked on the railway. We know, for example, that of the 61,811 POWs, roughly half of them, 30,131, were British. The rest consisted of 17,990 Dutch, brought over from Java and the Dutch East Indies, 13,004 Australians, and 686 Americans. But for the Asian labourers, there is no definitive number. As you heard when I spoke with Chandra, some estimate around 200,000 worked on the railways. Chandra suggests 300,000. Others, as many as half a million. The lowest figure I've read, a Japanese estimate, is just 70,000. This is such a huge discrepancy. The figures for the POWs are so accurate we can account for every single last man. For the Asian labourers, we're estimating not by the thousands, or even by the tens of thousands, but by the hundreds of thousands. As Chandra leaves me at Seraban Station, a station from where hundreds of Tamils left to work on the railways and never returned, I wish him all the best in his attempts to get a permanent memorial to commemorate these people. I'm on a sleeper train travelling northwards in Thailand. An entirely different experience from the prisoners and labourers. The steward makes up the bed, and after I climb into the top bunk, the train gently rocks me to sleep. I enjoy a comfortable night, the only inconvenience being the persistent snoring of one of my neighbours. In the early hours of the morning, we pass through Chompon. This is the starting point for the second railway line that Chandra told me about, the Kra Isthmus Line. Much shorter than the other railway, only 90 kilometres long, it was completed between June and November 1943. The line was in operation for less than a year before Allied bombing successfully put it out of action for good. Chandra told me that this shorter railway was built, maintained and run exclusively by Asian labourers. The track has long since disappeared, and any clues that it existed remain elusive. Andrew Gilchrist, a 35-year-old British diplomat and SOE operative, visited the area at the end of the war and described what he saw in a letter to his wife. I began to realise that I had quite another problem on my hands, in the shape of thousands of sick and starving and dying labourers, whom the Japanese had brought up from Malaya, Sumatra, Java and Singapore, to work on roads and railways in the Kra Isthmus area, and had been abandoned to their own devices. From their working camps, these creatures now came walking and crawling in search of food and help. These people crawling along the road were bad enough, but the next day I visited some of the dispersal camps, including a place which the Japanese called a hospital. It was nothing but a ghastly charnel house, a series of small, rotting huts in heavy jungle with thirty serious cases and a few corpses huddled together on filthy wooden floors. The smell was intolerable. The commonest diseases were tropical ulcers and dysentery, 
Many people had four diseases. Ulcers, dysentery, beriberi and malaria. The only medicine on view was a kind of wet, red disinfectant. No bandages were available. Sanitary arrangements were non-existent. And all patients were indescribably filthy and verminous. The Japanese attitude was not so much one of obstruction as of total incomprehension. They could not understand why anyone took so much interest in those miserable creatures. It seems that the Asian labourers in this story are like extras in a large theatrical production. They're often there, in the background, in large numbers, but they're never fully in the spotlight. They don't have any lines, they don't have a voice, and yet at the same time, the production wouldn't work without them. Unlike the POWs, there seems to be no written account from an Asian perspective, and Chandra laments the missed opportunity of recording their experience on the railways. problem is, you see, we did not interview people shortly after the war. Yeah. So we don't know. We don't know. Like in my father's case, he never talked about it. We didn't know anything about it. So we never asked. We never asked. We did not do any research when we should have. Mm. Let's say within 10 years of their return, we could have got thousands of stories like this, you know. We yes. could have got, but nobody did anything. By the time I got interested and I started interviewing people, uh, most of them had died. Listening to Chandra, I find myself wondering about all the other stories in our history that have gone forever, simply because no one ever wrote them down at the time. And I think about all the dedicated campaigners like Chandra, pushing hard to get those stories told today. They remind us that All too often, what we think we know about history isn't always the case. I've got one more stop before returning to Kanchanaburi. I'm going to find out about some very different workers on the railway line. The biggest and strongest workers of them all. Workers who were certainly more at home in the jungle. So today I'm just north of Hua Hin in Thailand and I'm with Tom Taylor of WFFT. Now Tom, what does WFFT stand for? WFFT stands for Wildlife Friends Foundation Thailand. And I'm with Tom today because I particularly want to talk about elephants and the reason I want to talk about elephants is apart from the thousands of human beings who toiled on the railway, the other beasts that toiled on the railway were elephants and there's estimated that were somewhere between the region of three to four hundred elephants working along the railway and their main task their main responsibility was to drag huge teak logs along the track which were then used for sleepers for the railway but Tom what I wanted to understand and the reason I came to see you today was how does one take a very large wild animal like an elephant and turn it into a working animal back then what is it 70 80 years ago when 80 years ago 80 years ago they started using the elephants they will have been directly caught from the forest so the 
the elephant catchers or the, the, the poachers, the hunters, would go out into the forest, usually using trained captive elephants and basically steal babies from herds and take them into captivity to train them. Um, usually done at a few years old. Uh, and obviously it wouldn't be uh, an easy, easy process to take a, a, an infant away from its mother, a highly protective, huge animal uh, that, that wants to protect its infant, so it can be quite distressing in itself, just the capturing of the elephants um, uh, and bringing them into captivity ready for training. I presume that the mother would, would be quite aggressive if she knew that you are trying to s steal her offspring. Sure, yeah, and, and other herd members. Elephants live, the Asian elephant lives in, in smaller herds than the African elephant, so you're looking at maybe 10 to 20 individuals in the wild, uh, and obviously there, there are sisters and aunties out there, and they're all there to protect the babies, so mm. they will act as a herd to protect that infant. So along with the mother, they will fight to, to, to keep that infant safe, uh, but again, they will use trained elephants ridden by humans who will go in and, and, and separate the baby, often tying it up and then dragging it away. In a worst-case scenario, they will have to kill a few of the herd members, shoot them uh, to stop them from protecting the infant. So tell me a little bit about the process of turning a wild animal that you've captured into an animal that will work for you and turn into a working animal. So in the case of elephants, the, the process is called the pajan, which in, in the, the closest direct translation of that is extreme separation. So it's the extreme separation from its family, from its mother. Uh, the elephant is then taken into captivity uh, and it goes through the, the breaking process, the breaking of the spirit. So it's confined to a small cage uh, where psychological, physical abuse is inflicted on the poor animal uh, in the aim of making it submit, similar to, to the prisoners of war, the human prisoners of war. These animals were forced to work for uh, the humans, another party. Um, tools that are used within this process, knives, hooks, chains, ropes drums, loud music, fire, anything that can inflict pain or, or, or psychological uh, distress to this animal. Separated from their family, beaten into submission, the elephants joined the labour force on the railways. They were popular with the POWs. Lieutenant John Coast, a 26-year-old of the Norfolk Regiment, recalls the most envious job on the railway was the job with the man who followed the elephant to see that the tree trunk he was pulling didn't get caught up in the jungle. Sometimes the elephant trumpeted as it pulled the massive timbers along and there was a practically naked, matted, bearded Englishman trailing behind, having an easy day. It's estimated that it would take 14 men to do the work of one elephant on the railway. Hence, in Dennis Peak, a Singaporean resident who, along with his brother, volunteered to fight giving his memoirs the pithy title One Fourteenth of an Elephant. After a five-day journey from Singapore, the final destination for the men was Ban Pong, a railway junction 80 kilometres to the west of Bangkok. 
It was from here that the Thai side of the Burma Railway would begin. First impressions were not good. Carrie Outram, the artillery officer, whom we last met swimming in the sea at Changi Beach, describes his arrival in Thailand with a heavy dose of English irony. At last, on the first day we reached Ban Pong in Siam and detrained. We arrived at the wonderful camp with its hospital completely equipped, as promised by the Japanese in Singapore. In England, the RSPCA would have brought proceedings against anyone keeping cattle in such a place, but it was good enough for British prisoners of war. In Singapore, the men of F-Force like Harold Ashley and Noel Duckworth had been promised more food, better facilities, including a well-stocked kitchen and hospital, and a short distance to travel to their camp. Instead, they and the many sick men with them discovered their camp was 300 kilometres away, and they were expected to walk all the way. Unfortunately for them, the later you arrived at the railway, and they were among the last, the more track had already been built, the longer you had to travel to your labour camp. They dumped everything but the most necessary equipment. The gramophones and piano, that unbelievably had made it all the way from Singapore, were abandoned. More importantly, so were vital medical supplies, hospital equipment and cooking utensils. Despite promises that these supplies would be sent after them, they were never seen again. The march would take three weeks to complete. For the sick, even the short distances were a struggle in the heat and pouring rain. Stanley Pavillard, the doctor we last met bemoaning the rackets and swindles in Changi, writes, I remember weeping with rage when trying in vain to get men to support someone at the end of the column who could no longer march, with the result that the guards insisted we kept on moving and the wretch had to be left on his own in the middle of the jungle track. One can only hope that they were picked up sooner or later. Many were not. And this reminds me of a story that Chandra shared with me, a story he heard from a man forced to work on the railway with his cousin. So he told me that he and his, uh, was it his cousin, both were, had, had gone and they were separated when they reached there, they were, had separated. So his brother had gone on a different batch and he had gone separately. And they were all walking along the same path, you know. Maybe he was a day or two ahead of him. So as he was walking, he found that there were so many dead bodies along the way because they were not fit to, to take that kind of walk, you know, because you had to walk through jungle paths which were muddy and it made worse with the rain, you know. So uh, they were not used to it. And uh, the Japanese don't allow you to stop and help these people. They just want you to keep marching. Anybody who can't, you just leave them alone and you just keep marching, you know. So they said, even if it's your own son or, or your own father, you can't stop and uh, help him. They will just tell you to move on. As he was walking and he saw many dead bodies along the way and he stopped to see one particular dead body which looked quite familiar to him. And he just stood for a moment to look and he said, that was my cousin you know, where, who was separated from him and who started walking a few days earlier. He said that was his cousin and he was still alive. 
but only uh, still alive but motionless you know mm. and uh, as he approached to, to speak to him the Japanese fellow hit him with a bamboo on his back you know he felt a very sharp pain and uh, he shouted at him to, to tell him to move on so he knew he can't do much so what he did was he took a towel from his shoulder and just put it on him he knew that that guy is not going to make it because he has seen so many other dead people so mm. he was still alive then but he said I, I couldn't do anything for him you know so mm. the most I could do was put a towel on him you know and he moved on and he never saw that guy again so like this you know I mean uh, I mean the the the, the I would say uh, the content for life in you know, a human life you know you could have saved him if you had given him some water, given him something, you know. But no, yeah. uh, sick man is of no use to the Japanese. Yeah. They want fit people. Sick men were of no use to the Japanese. A mantra often heard on the death railway was, no work, no food. Next time on the death railway revisited, I return to Kanchanaburi. I will learn the true story of the legendary bridge there, and the man who actually built it. I'll also learn about the importance of leadership, and I'll visit one of the most infamous parts of the railway, Hellfire Pass. If you're finding this podcast interesting, please visit the website www.deathrailwayrevisited.com where you'll find more information and photos of the location I visited. This podcast is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive account of the Death Railway, It's based on what I saw and who I spoke to. So if you'd like to know more, there's a suggested reading and watching list on the website as well. I do hope you find them interesting.